How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? Podcast time. Hope all is well in your world and life is chugging along. And sometimes, and this is the problem, sometimes when we're all focused on our own little problems, day-to-day issues, electricity bills, mortgage rates, all that stuff, we rarely actually try to gain altitude and see the big picture, simply because sometimes it's a bit of a head-wrecking event. But luckily today, what we're going to do is we're going to guide you through a view of the world, a very serious altitudinous view, almost a space-side view of the world, from somebody that, John, I've known for a long time, you've met her before, Pippa Malgram, I think you met her? She's brilliant. And her dad, Harold, isn't it? Harold Malgram, who yeah. was JFK's advisor. Yeah, I, absolutely fascinating guy. He was down in, uh, where I met them that time, was down in Kilconomics a few years a ago. A few years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is way, well, it was before COVID. It was pre-COVID, pre-COVID exactly. <laughs> the world that existed before COVID, exactly. But before yes. social distancing and Indeed. things like that. Yeah, yeah. But both of them have been economic advisors. To American presidents. Advisors, to American so. presidents. Yes. So that's the interesting Unbelievable. thing. So this is a family just that I've known for a long time. And Pippa's father, Harold, was the advisor to JFK mm. and Nixon. So he was, and able, he was in the room. He was in the room at During, the Cuban Missile yeah, Crisis. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. so imagine you were actually one of those guys, very, very young at the time, still incredibly, seems incredibly fit. He's been in his 90s and physically yeah. very, very fit. And Pippa was, of course, the advisor, economic advisor to George Bush. Yeah, W. Bush. W, exactly. And so it's an extraordinary thing. You have a father and daughter combination who have advised American presidents for the last 50 years. Talk about finger on the pulse. Yeah, and also also when they talk about being in the room and who says what and et cetera, you really realize that there's there's always these things. There's, There's testimony. And there's analysis, right? Yeah. And analysis is great. And it's what people do in commentary and to a degree, it's what we do. But testimony, like I was there. I yeah. know that person you're talking about. That's so much more persuasive yeah, yeah. because they say, okay, forget about this crisis. I was actually 
during the meeting there. You know, so yeah. it's, it's funny. And I contributed. And I contributed, exactly. <laughs> so so the interesting thing about geopolitics and, and, and economics and trying to look at the world is there's two things that are quite, quite separate. One are events and one are trends. Yeah. Okay. And when you look at the world now, it's probably fair to say in terms of events are quite scary, but trends are quite positive. But one of the problems is... How do you mean? Explain so, that. So basically big trends like world food, energy, yeah. education, the position of women, globalization, the position of the poor, are those big trends are actually getting better. And there's huge innovations. But events like the war in Ukraine, like the strength of the dollar, like the stock markets, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. Like, like what's happening in the UK. So if you, if you, I've always thought you should, when you're looking at the world, you should take two things. So you've got events and you've got trends. Yeah, yeah. And trends in general in the last 10 or 15 years have been very positive, right? But events are increasingly incredibly negative. Mm. And the problem with journalism and this is a major problem with journalism, is journalism is driven by events. Yes, of course. So journalism, yeah. by definition, never sees the big picture, right? This is, I've always thought, even though I am. Right, okay. Even though I am a journalist, right? Yeah, I am yeah. a columnist, right? You know, because our job is to speak about the events of the day, yeah. right? And therefore, we're kind of hardwired to focus on the issue of the week or the month or the yeah. year, rather than the big overarching span of... Yeah, humanity, and it's the, the symptom of having a daily newspaper and daily news shows that you're on a daily news cycle. Well, you're you're event driven. So, yes, you're event yeah, yeah, driven. yeah. Now, and the the existential fact of the last fifty years, or actually, you can argue since the industrial revolution, mm. is that human innovation has been fantastically positive for almost all of us, right? So whether it's, you know, health or well-being or longevity or education, all those sort yeah. of things. But that doesn't sell. That's not necessarily what people want to hear. They want to hear, okay, what happened tomorrow? What's happening tomorrow and how does that affect me? Yeah. So I think, you know... But are we, have we been conditioned into that news cycle? It's just, and, it's, I think it must be actually much, much deeper than this. Yeah, so it's I part think, of the human condition. I think it even goes back to hunter-gatherers. I think that part of the human condition is to avoid danger. Okay, yeah. and highlight danger because yes. danger could kill you as an animal. If you imagine we were, you know, the huge amount of humanity is an inherited genetic legacy yeah. from thousands of years, right? So one of the things that humans always do is we're very sensitive to peril, to danger, to jeopardy. Yeah. Because deep in our DNA, jeopardy killed us. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I think that that's the way we think. I think this is the way, I mean, I don't know. Well, we're also... But I'm thinking our brain is hardwired to identify danger. Yes. And the news cycle is only the 21st century version of the hunter-gatherer yeah. saying, see that fucking saber-toothed tiger? I wouldn't mess with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this is what I think, okay? This is entirely unsubstantiated, John. Yeah, of course. This is, this is, <laughs> Most of this shit is. <laughs> this is five pints later. You've seen our fucking brain, man. You know what I'm saying to you, right? Me, the saber-toothed tiger, Liz Trust. It's all in the same thing, okay? <laughs> But then there's the other the other part of it as well is that in those daily newspapers and those columnists and all, well, very fine always, ones, particularly Irish always, Times columnists, very fine. <laughs> we're always being told you got to live in the moment, you know, you got to live in the here and now. 
Yeah. So it's not. It's. Th- I want. I want to live yesterday. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sick of the here and now. I want to live in the past. I want nostalgia. That's what Mark Blythe was talking <laughs> about the other day. Exactly. Nostalgia. Exactly. Exactly. By the way, John and I have actually ended up being you know these two nostalgic outlads <laughs> talking about. I'm telling you, the nineties oh, was much better. Day, huh? Music was much better. That that old plinkety plinky electronic <laughs> stuff. That's that's that stuff. Anyway, let us. We digress. But we're talking about the difference between events and trends. Somebody who really has a handle on this, apart from you and I sitting in McKenna's drinking pints, talking nonsense, is Pippa Malgram. She is, again, as I said, an old friend coming to Kilconomics, one of the great thinkers. Why don't we go straight away to the States and talk to Pippa? Now, I have one of my favourite people, not just economists, favourite people on the line. Pippa Malgram, old friend, unbelievably brainy Brainy, brainy thinker, a Kilconomics regular, and actually coming back to Kilconomics, which I can't wait to see you in person. And always somebody who actually makes me think differently every time we have a conversation. Pippa, how are you? Great to see you. Oh, you're so lovely. It's fabulous to see you. <laughs> now tell me, tell me, tell me. I know it's all nice and let's chit-chat, but you've, you've written something on your Substack which says, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, World War Three is upon us. What do you mean by that? So I wrote that on October 29th last year. And at that time, people were like, what are you talking about? But I've spent, you know, my whole life looking at the nexus between the world economy and geopolitics, strategic security issues. And I argue that we've really been at war amongst the superpowers, particularly in space, for about the last five years, but because literally there are no journalists in space and it's all classified, nobody knows except the people in the strategic security military community. And I view what has happened in Ukraine almost as a spillover from that bigger fight. And then I went on to argue we're in a hot war in cold places, meaning space, the high seas, submarine warfare, again, places people can't see. And we're in a cold war in hot places, meaning the South Pacific, for example, where the US and China are vying for dominance amongst all the different island chains there. And why is that valuable? Because if you're in a naval war, and that's really important, we're used to army land-based wars in the last few decades. We're now in a naval and space conflict, very different. So the fact that people are now catching up saying, oh my God, uh, there's a nuclear threat. We're in World War III. I'm like, yeah. And actually I can already see the other side of this thing, which is it's gonna come out fine. But we can talk about that in a minute. That, People are that still we trying like. to catch up. That we like. That we like. That we like. I, I like that tactic. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good bar tactic, you know, kind of t- intimidate, terrorize. And say, but you know what? It's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to, let's go back to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to come back to World War Three. I want to just start with the economics right now. Okay. Mm. The global economy. Where do you think it is? We're going into what looks to me like an extraordinary extraordinarily turbulent time over the course of the next six to 12 months. What's your thinking? So it's almost quantum 
meaning things that seem totally contradictory can happen at the same time. And what you're looking for is what you'll find. So yes, there's going to be a lot of bad news. There's also an immense amount of innovation and change. Let, let me start with the positive side because we'll dwell longer on the negative side. Well, the positive side is we used to have this thing called globalization and everyone thinks we've lost it. But what it really meant was all the jobs went to China because they were the cheapest. Now they're not competitive anymore. Their wages are too high. Their quality control is too low. So what we're getting is what I've been calling glocalization, which is the relocalization of supply chains. What that means is all the jobs are going everywhere. And that rise in the entrepreneurial response function to the mess in the world economy is really important because everybody's going, wait a minute. If, if this is all so terrible, I got to look after my own future. So people are building companies like crazy. And I see a huge amount of innovation, job creation, but it takes time for that to happen. So for the next couple of years, we're going to get bad economic data while people are busy building the future. I'm confident the future is going to look just fine. But this next couple of years, the data is terrible. And just to elaborate that on, on that a little bit. I think that in the context of this World War III was already well in play, the Russians and the Chinese were very deliberate and very careful in their actions. And they're basically waging a war on the West's financial position. It's about de-dollarization. It's about hitting the West when we're at record debt levels, when we had inflation, when we knew, they knew we were fragile. Hard assets, they were, they're all about raising the price of hard assets, whether that's wheat or oil. But the good news is in the West, we're so darn agile and responsive to price signals, people start doing all kinds of interesting things that eliminate the problem. And I can talk about that in a minute, but I see dramatic new scientific and technological innovations that'll totally diminish our dependence on these things, but it just takes a little time. Okay, so let's, let's, let's tease all this out, okay? Let's talk about Russia and China's strategic thinking here, because I like that idea that what you're saying is wait, 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 wait until the moment we feel the West is at its weakest, most fragile, most sensitive. So you think that's this, their strategic thinking. So nothing oh, is happening definitely. that hasn't been figured out five or six years ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. This has been plotted and planned for a very, very long time. I mean, think about it this way. We have the president of Russia conducting a war that even his most senior people didn't realize was coming. Yes, that's very, very so, true. So they he kept it to within five or six people, maybe. I don't know the number, but it's certainly his inner circle, who unfortunately now have mainly been thrown off the top of various buildings. So his inner circle's very small now. But yeah, exactly. And I do think it was done in collaboration with China. I I've likened it to two guys in a bar. People are like, wait, what's the relationship between the Russians and the Chinese here? And I'm like, two guys in a bar. And the Russian says, I just hate these Americans and I just want to punch them. And the Chinese guy says, you should do that. And so the Russian guy throws the punch, swinging, we got blood everywhere. Then they go back to the Chinese guy and say, hey, what, what's going on here? And the guy's like, hey, I just met the guy, right? Like total hands off. But what's important is China got a huge amount of information about the West from all this. They've seen our reaction times. They've seen the public response. Like, And the minute Putin said, I might use a nuclear weapon, 
the first thing China did was to use the word truce and constructive negotiations. In other words, we're not that close. Yeah, back off. Like, back off. And all the while, though, if you go back to the West and the financial markets, the dollar has been rising. This is causing all sorts of problems for every non-American country. Where do you see this going? Because you, you were saying that, that, that the West is unbelievably agile and we're entrepreneurial and we're flexible. We're almost, almost evolutionary in our ability to adapt. So things will be okay, right? But for the moment, if you're looking out to the six, 12-month time horizon, you're looking at an incredibly fragile financial system and an incredibly strong dollar. Talk to me about yeah. the strong dollar. Well, so remember, I used to be the chief currency strategist for one of the biggest investment banks. So I spent a lot of time, like my roots are in foreign exchange. The one country that can totally handle a really strong currency or a really weak one is the U.S. Exactly. Because fundamentally, we just don't really trade with the rest of the world. We actually, as Americans, don't believe there is a rest of the world out there. We're like, I heard vaguely beyond the ocean or something else. <laughs> right? You know, it's... it's what I've uh, always I'm, thought about the American baseball. <laughs> the World Series is between, like, Cincinnati yeah, and San exactly. Francisco. I'm saying, Mom, that's not the world. Like, exactly. So the good news is, if there's one country that is completely unaffected by a strong currency, it's the U.S., and the U.S. is able to go back to firing on all engines in spite of this. You're right that the big problem are, are places like Africa and emerging markets that have become highly indebted borrowing dollars. And now they're having to pay back when their currencies are collapsing because they've got inflation that's eroding their values as well. So for the emerging markets, this is a serious problem and one that I think will result and has already in geopolitical instability in those places. So like, I mean, we're talking about, like, it strikes me that we're looking in 2023 at significant defaults across emerging markets. And we're talking about, we're talking about Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, all of Africa that has actually involved itself in something. Turkey, these are big, big countries, big strategic countries. We are looking at, so the problem with defaults is that, first of all, the creditor has to pay. The debtor defaults, they get locked out of markets, which could be Pakistan. These are, these are seriously geostrategic countries. Pakistan, Turkey, South Africa, Brazil. I mean, what, what does that world look like? Well, let me pick this apart a little bit. Turkey, for example, again, on my subset column, I've got two pieces. One is called hot turkey and one is called cold turkey. And those explain the new deepening of the relationship between China and Turkey. And so I think that Turkey is going to end up kind of in the comfortable hands of being a partner with China. So it won't default in the traditional way. Like like Iran is. Yeah, 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 exactly. Indeed. So China is cleverly gathering its allies. Um, and if they become vulnerable, they reach a hand to the ones they want to work with and anybody else, you know, can drown. By the way, we're like this too in America. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the strategy, but the strategy is real. I think the really important one to watch is Russia. And now here we're going to get super controversial. But I think what's happening is President Putin is losing control. His opponents smell blood in the water, and they're all beginning to move away from him and jockey to be the next leader of the country, including some of his closest allies, like the president of Chechnya. And I imagine that probably what will happen is, uh, I call it the Ukraine effect, which is everybody goes, well, if a little country can take on a big one and actually win, then hey, why are we still reporting to you guys? 
that's even behind this this uh, movement in Iran now with the women and their hair locks flowing, you know, as they protest having to keep their heads covered. So this is global pressure. So bottom line is, I think Russia breaks apart. I think that this is the actual end of the Soviet Union. We thought it ended in 1991, but in fact, just a small group of people got control of the country. But now it properly breaks up and pretty much everything east of the Urals, I think will end up in nominal Chinese control. It won't be overt, but they'll effectively own the east. And in the south and in the center, yeah, maybe Russia keeps that, but it's a much smaller country. And the peripheral countries all start basically fomenting against Russia, just like Ukraine has. So we're going to have a very different picture on the map. Now, that has knock-on effects for all these emerging markets, because that's a, that's a it's got knock-on dramatic effects. change. It's got knock-on effects. It's really interesting. Another another. Kilkonomics guest is a guy called Sasha Kamanovsky, who's an old mate yes. of mine, Russian guy. And he actually also believes that Russia is in the grips of atrophying precisely mm. the same thing. But countries don't atrophy peacefully. That's the problem. Big countries. We're, we're talking a country with yes. seven or eight time zones, the biggest country in the world by a significant amount. It makes Canada look small, mm-hmm. right? So we're talking mm-hmm. about a huge, they, these things don't happen peacefully. Well, but I would say, you know, it used to be the east of the Urals and, and uh, you know, you know, Misha Glenny and his work yep. on uh, organized crime. You know, the east of Russia used to be predominantly dominated by, I don't know, five or six major organized crime gangs. They were Russian, but they've been Chinese for quite a long time. So the shift of this kind of who's in charge here in the east, I think will happen very quietly and very smoothly. And, and very Chinese will. Very Chinese, oh, they'll manage that, right? They're, they'll just manage that. And by the way, notice that when Xi went to Samarkand for the meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting just a couple of weeks ago, he said something really interesting. He said the stands, Central Asia, used to be Russia's backyard, but now it's our front yard. And so I see China expanding its influence. And by the way, that means China can grow again, right? Because if they can't grow yeah, through innovation, they're out of options. They they got inflation. They're too expensive. Their quality control is not good enough for yeah, the modern they've a, world. They have a bust housing market. They have a bust yeah. banking system. They have a lot of they have a lot of things that we recognize as right. being development problems. So one way is you acquire new assets. And these parts of the world are full this of is, raw materials and assets. This is always right? happens when, when big companies, by the way, when big companies yes. run out of options, they always buy little companies. It's called the M&A totally. strategy, right? That's what I've been calling it. It's China's M&A strategy. It's, it's like an M&A strategy. It's like, okay, what do we do? Think about you know companies like Google. They ran out of options. Yeah. Like, shit, what do we do? We buy up Just everything. Buy companies stuff. like Facebook, we buy up everything. Yeah. So we buy everybody <laughs> else's innovations, okay, in order to drive up our share price, in order for us to look cool. So this is, this is the M&A strategy of a country that domestically is out of options, so it's got to go somewhere else. You and I think so alike. This is it. Okay, so tell me now. This is this is absolutely fascinating. We're, so we're talking about the twenty twenties here. So this is the mm. decade that we're in, out to twenty thirty. And if you look back at history, the nineteen twenties was equally convulsive, equally yes. dramatic. You know, you have Stalin coming to power, you have Mussolini coming to power, you have all these huge changes, and of course, in the West, 
you have extraordinary worries about exchange rates, the gold standard. You end up with the 1929 crash at the end of it. What happens in our economies in the next little while? And okay, our societies, because, gonna... you know, you know, you're, you're, you know <laughs> like, talk about, like, we see the UK, we see what happens in the UK when silly people take charge, stupid things happen, right? We've had a little of that in America as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just a little. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to just cast some very bright sunlight now on this whole picture. <laughs> okay, so let's go, Pippa. What I see, yeah, I know, uh, but here's what I see. I see... I've been watching what I call the space space very carefully, which is all this innovation that's happening around this literally once in a species movement of humanity where we're not just going to go back and step on the moon. We're going to stay there and we're going to build there and we're literally building launch pads from there to elsewhere. It sounds so sci-fi, but it's not. So here are the things that come out of it. Number one, a lot of space-based solutions to earthbound problems. Number one, I'm watching really carefully space-based solar power. If they do that, and the prototype's underway right now, we should have it in three years. Imagine a world where you won't even need solar panels. You push a button and literally it beams down from a mirror array, the sun's rays, and you've got power. So I see ubiquitous energy that totally displaces oil and gas and traditional hydrocarbons. Now, it'll take a decade to commercialize it, but once people understand that that's real, that's a game changer. Number two, ubiquitous connectivity with satellite-based internet globally, which will lift the value of the whole world economy because you can not only base yourself anywhere, but you can keep an eye on assets anywhere in the world and know what's happening to them. And so connectivity becomes universal and cheap and ubiquitous. And number three, you know this um, NASA asteroid event the other day where they smack the asteroid to knock it off course. But that's not actually what that's about. It's about asteroid mining. And everything we need in our iPhone can be taken off of asteroids. And asteroid mining is about to be a huge thing. That means unlimited, ubiquitous, cheap resources. You put those three together, ubiquitous energy, ubiquitous connectivity, and ubiquitous resources, that totally changes what the world's going to look like 10 years from now in a very positive way. Now, amazingly, that totally changes what you and I do for living economics, because economics is based on scarcity. Okay? Oh, 100%, so yes. if what you're saying is <laughs> we're going from a world of scarcity, making choices under conditions of scarcity, yep. we're going to a world of abundance. Yes. That, that's, one, I, that's one way of looking at it. Well, and again, it's so fascinating because you jumped exactly to my conclusion, which is how does capitalism work when you don't have scarcity? Because scarcity is what drives pricing. And I don't know what this looks like, but I do know that if you can do it and you can do it cheaply and it gives you a strategic security advantage to have all these things, which is why particularly the U.S. and China are racing to see who will have the first base on the moon because then you control all these things. It must be an incredibly valuable future. They wouldn't be fighting it out like this if it weren't. So I'm not sure, but maybe that kills capitalism. We end up with something else. But what I think is that all of our current fears of we won't have enough oil and we won't have enough food and we won't have enough this, that will begin to subside as we realize technological innovation actually fixes a lot of things. And just before you go, the implication then for your Russias, your Saudi Arabias, all these countries that have become, we've become dependent on, 
because they've mm. got stuff under the ground. What you're saying is 10 years, 20 years hence, these will just revert back to what they might have been 100 years ago. Well, the Saudis already know this. And by the way, the Norwegians as well, both of them have said that they want to be 100% free of hydrocarbon dependence as fast as they can, because they see this too. So that's why the Saudis are building Neom, which is a city which has no hydrocarbons. It's completely solar. The highways are solar. The buildings are solar. They are trying to jump ahead of this and use the money that they've made out of hydrocarbons and move into this hydrocarbon-free world. So yeah, they already get this. And is their, is their strategy, look, we make more money out of exporting hydrocarbons than we do using them. So as long as, you know, Africa is still going to be using liquid fuels, which it probably will, because again, all these it things, will. rich countries will get first dibs at all, this goodies, sure. at all these goodies. Sure. And so what you're saying is that the, the, the Saudis are like, okay, 20 years hence, we might not necessarily be using hydrocarbons, but somebody's going to be using them and we're going to still export them. Well, and that's true. But I think the bigger issue here is both China and Saudi have realized there's more juice in being a peace broker and focusing on the future and the technological innovation than there is in aligning with Russia on the we have all the oil and you can't have it strategy. It's yeah. Because it's just so short term compared to where the world is yeah. really going. It's, it's like the usual, it's, it's always the guy who throws the punch in the bar gets thrown out. It completely. He always gets, he always but, fucked out. And, the barman, the, the bouncers kick him out. And it's the other guy says, actually, you know what? You shouldn't have, you know. So it's that idea is, is, is that they're actually figuring out where they lie and where they lie is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And actually, yeah, I, I love this analogy. I always say, you know, when a fight breaks out in a bar, you don't hit the person who caused the thing. You hit the person you've been wanting to hit for a long time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's an element of that in the world economy right now as well. But but it's interesting who's emerging as a peace broker. Notice it was the Saudis who brokered the prisoner swap between NATO and sure, Russia. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And notice, again, China is trying to position itself as the peace broker on the don't use nuclear issue. And so that actually gives me encouragement. You know, this is a good thing. Pippa, this is a tour de force around the world, around the world. <laughs> uh, I will see you. No, it's great, great stuff. All sorts, of, all sorts of food for thought. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. I will see you in Kilkenny in a couple of weeks' time. That's you Pippa. Will. And if, you, if, 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 if this is the sort of stuff that turns you on... Kilconomics.com. <laughs> I think we're working you hard. I think we're working you hard. So a number of pounds, but actually I think we should do this one. Maybe me and Good. you sit down. Maybe me and you sit down and just do a Pippa's world, Malgum's world. <laughs> I would love that. Brilliant stuff. And I'll see you in Kilkenny. You will. I'm so looking forward to it. Mac, yeah. Pippa was brilliant as always. Fascinating stuff. But I have to say, I don't really recognise the world that she's talking about. Okay. But let's have a chat about that after we pay a few bills. Fair enough. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, John, you were saying to me you don't recognize the world. Well, yeah. I mean... It's it's a bit of an odd one. Like, she started off talking about we're in the middle of World War Three, but it's happening out of view. Yeah. You know, it's either in space, which I'd never considered before as a, as a you know, a, a theatre of, theater. of war. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or underwater. Yeah. Or out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. So it is hard to get a handle on that. And it is, it's, yeah. it's not being and reported. And particularly when there is a war going on on the ground old-fashioned style. Yes. And that's what you actually think about it. Yeah. It's men with guns and tanks on the ground. Also, what was really interesting about what Pippa was saying there as well, there was two things. When she was talking about China taking control of Russia, everything east of the Urals. Yeah. Which I found fascinating, but also the fact that China and Russia are kind of waiting for the West to be weak. And at the moment, the West, America... Britain, NATO are ploughing all their equipment and their missiles and everything into Ukraine. But of course, it takes a while to rebuild that whole stockpile. Yeah. So it gets to a point when America are at a very weak point in terms of militarily. Because you think all the stuff has gone to the She now is going to be inaugurated as president for life. That's and then week. goes, hey ho, let's take over Taiwan now. Then America aren't in a position to take them on. Just a thought. Just a thought. Leave that there. Leave that hanging out there. But she was also talking about this ubiquitous energy and the ubiquitous connectivity and asteroid mining and stuff. That, to me, like, we are going in, we were talking about trends earlier, we are going in that trend. But she was talking in the near future. Well, yeah. But but I'm kind of, I don't recognise, I can't see that happening for quite a while, yeah. I understand what you're saying. I don't know half enough about engineering and aeronautical engineering mm. and space engineering to see is all that sort of stuff possible. That, you know, kind of frankly, sort of Star Wars thing. Yeah. The warning from history is about making too many fantastic observations about the future. Extrapolating is space oddity. Yeah. So space oddity, David Bowie album, space yeah. odyssey, the movie. Yeah. Right. Comes out in 1970. Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, 69, 70, right? Making the, at the time, very, very plausible forecast that people would live in space. Yes. By the year 
2001. Yeah, and AI technology as well. Yeah, and of course, at the time, because the Americans had just landed on the moon, the, and the Russians had just landed on the moon, the idea was that there will be a linear progress towards space life, towards yeah. humans in space. Russia never landed on the moon. Did they not, Russia? No. Did they not? No. I always thought they did. They just spun around it. Oh, just Yuri Gagarin in a fucking... Yeah, Yuri Gagarin in what looked like a bin with an engine around the back of it. Actually, I have a great T-shirt of Yuri Gagarin somewhere that I got yeah. in Russia. Yeah, I have to go I have to go and dig it out. It's a picture of a fellow in his space head. The Yuri Gagarin in it. But the point is that at the time when David Bowie released Space Oddity, when Stanley Cooper made the movie, popular culture suggested... Kubrick. What did I call him, Cooper? Yeah. Stanley Kubrick did Space Odyssey, right? Popular culture suggested there's going to be a linear progress yeah. to landing on the moon and then space travel and yada, yada, yada. It didn't happen. That's yeah. the interesting thing. Yeah. In fact, arguably the reason it didn't happen was the Americans kind of had a look around, said, mm, not too sure about this. Great for the flag. Great for the telly. Yeah. Actually, there's loads of conspiracy theorists on the internet say they didn't land the moon. Well, I, I was going to say, that's it. Maybe that's why it didn't happen, because but to come, we were never there. We were never there. To come back to Pippa's <laughs> point, which is, you know, if there is a future of ubiquitous energy, yeah, based on solar panels in space, beaming down energy, okay? Yeah. Imagine that future, right? If there is asteroid mining, so basically all the minerals and stuff that we dig out of the ground we can actually get in ample quantities these things flying around, mm. okay? Then we, we go from a world of scarcity to a world of abundance. Mm. And that is an extraordinary intellectual leap. And you can argue that, we were talking about hunter-gatherers there at the top of the show, you know, all the way back to the hunter-gatherers, humanity has been making choices based on scarcity. Yes. Scarcity of fire, scarcity of food. Scarcity as we get old, as, as we, we progress of energy and all these sort of things, yeah, yeah. right? Scarcity of housing. Scarcity of housing, exactly. No, but you're absolutely right. Scarcity of caves. There's my fucking cave. No, no, it's my cave. It's my remortgaged cave, right? Okay. But it's the same basic yeah. idea. And she's saying we could be on the cusp of something totally transformational. I, I, I find that very exciting. I do too. I do too. I just can't quite see it. When you start, I'm, as, as you said earlier, we're not engineers. Thankfully. But, <laughs> Could you imagine the bridge we built? I wouldn't drive over it. But, but like the logistics of actually sending a bunch of miners out to an asteroid a few billion miles away and then gathering up the stuff and hauling it back, I, it's just, it's a little bit too far-fetched for me at this stage. That may well happen, but in the far distant future. There he is. He's nailed his colours to the mast. John Davis is saying, right? that we will continue to dig minerals out of mountains yeah. and out of the ground. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But fascinating stuff, because you do need to think, why are the Americans and the Chinese investing so much in space technology? Yeah. It can't necessarily be to have better mobile phone coverage. That's not what's actually no, driving sure. them. It must be something else. Anyway, Pippa will be at Kilconomics. You can ask her then. I will. <laughs> Talk to you next week, lads. Bye.